Hey, what's up everyone? It is Pastor Marcus here from the storychurchproject.com. Welcome to the Story Church Project podcast where our focus is how to redesign the local Adventist church to tell its story loud to a culture that is no longer listening. I hope that you're blessed by what you hear and that it inspires you to make a difference in your local church today. in this endless cycle and you just you just wish you just long for you just imagine you know i remember growing up there's this movie that came out it was called the matrix i don't know if any, how many of you have ever seen the matrix but there's a scene in the matrix where one of the characters says to the other character you can take a red pill or you can take a blue pill and whichever pill he took you know either he was going to stay in his self-deluded world or he was going to see reality and I remember thinking to myself so many times, like, I wish that that's what the spiritual life, if God walked up to me right now and said, Marcus, if you take the red pill, I'll set you free. And if you take the blue pill, you'll stay in your sin. I would have smashed that red pill up like that. I was tired of this endless cycle of addiction. I wanted freedom. So this verse gave me a lot of hope. But it also confused me. It confused me because when I looked at it, I said, you know, it, it, it sounds good, but it doesn't really work. Because Jesus said, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free, and I know the truth, and I'm still not free. Anybody been there? Like, I grew up in church, and I've been to Sabbath school, and I've been to baptismal class. I did the whole Pathfinder thing, had all the cool patches. You guys remember those? I'm still not free. And so I was hopeful by what the verse promised, but at the same time, I wasn't free. So I was confused. Maybe the gospel just doesn't work for me. Well, it turns out, as I've journeyed through life, and God is good because he never, ever gives up on us, it turns out that um, I eventually discovered I didn't understand what Jesus was actually saying in John 8.36. When Jesus was talking about truth, he was talking about something a little different from what I had in mind. And I want to explore that this morning as I recap last year and take a sneak peek into this new year. But before I explain what I mean by that, I want to throw this statement out there for all of you guys to ponder. And then we'll take a look at what it has to do with John 8:32. All of scripture is a revelation of God's heart. All of scripture is a revelation of God's heart. Now I want to dig into that statement. Eventually you'll see what it has to do with John 8:32. I want to dig into that statement because it not only recaps what we explored last year, but it looks forward to what we'll be exploring this year. I want to say one more prayer. Lord, may your Holy Spirit just fall in this place. May you speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. 
the foundation, which is what we explored last year, the foundation and essence of the biblical narrative is to unveil step by step a deeper and richer picture of who God is and what he's like. And what we explored was that this revelation doesn't just take place in the book of John or in the book of Galatians or in the book of Psalms. It takes place in all of Scripture. It begins in Genesis and it ends in Revelation. Another way to put it is like this. The entire Bible is gospel. There's no such thing as the gospel in the Bible and then everything else. The entire narrative is gospel. The entire story is good news. But I want to illustrate it like this. I want to illustrate it like this because I find illustrations are helpful. So here we go. I have here on the screen a heart. Now I want you to think of the Bible as a story that is all about the heart of God. And that's what we explored all last year. So for those of you who were here, that should not be news. All the scripture is, this, is about the heart of God. And as you read through scripture, you encounter this thing called doctrine. Now, what is the purpose of doctrine? Doctrine is like these magnifying glasses that give you a deeper glimpse into the heart of God. So you've got the Sabbath, and you look through the Sabbath, and you can see the heart of God in ways you wouldn't have without that doctrine. And you've got, I don't know, the state of the dead, the judgment, you know, the sanctuary, and, and on and on. Each of these doctrines, as you look through them, you encounter the character of God in ways that you wouldn't otherwise encounter. So the whole narrative is about his heart. And those doctrines are like magnifying glasses that expand on the beauty of his character. See, my biggest mistake when it came to this whole truth will set you free thing is that I missed the essence of what truth was. In my mind, truth was just a series of loosely connected doctrinal ideas. And I understood them. I understood the Sabbath. I understood the sanctuary. I've been to all the classes and I've read all the books. But what I missed was how each of these doctrines were supposed to take me deeper into the love of God. So as a result, none of my doctrines were really taking me anywhere. So if you picture this, this is the biblical view, the love of God magnified by the diverse teachings throughout the Bible. This is what I was doing. In fact, this is what many of us do. We look at the doctrines, but we don't look through them. So we end up with a whole bunch of stuff we understand really well that gives us no life. Because if you want to experience freedom in your life, if you want to experience transformation in your life, if you want to experience victory in your life, it's only found in the presence of God. And if all you have is doctrinal knowledge, but it's not actually taking you into the presence of God, then that's not the truth that Jesus was talking about. 
You say, Marcus, well, how do you know? Well, let's take a look at what Jesus says again. Verse 32, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And then he says in verse 36, whom the son sets free will be free indeed. In other words, Jesus is equating truth with himself. He's equating the truth that sets us free with himself. And the reason why I understood truth but had no victory is because all I had was this. I understood the doctrines, but they weren't leading me to Jesus. They weren't bringing me like a portal into his presence. The magnifying glasses, instead of looking through them, I was just looking at them. And so they lost their purpose. So in time, God showed me that doctrine is not something we look at. It's something we look through. And when you remove the love of God as the thing that you're looking and you're exploring through the doctrines, what you end up with is what I call dry theology. Actually, I didn't make that word up. I got that from Ellen White. I thought it was cool, dry theology. Now, I've been a pastor for a few years now. Not for a long time, just a few years. But I've been an Adventist all my life. And I have to say that this, is, this represents the vast majority of what I encounter in people's experience. They look at the magnifying glasses and they're passionate about the magnifying glasses. But when you try and dig as, and see what difference does it really make in your life, what, what, what change does it really produce in your character, you find it leads them nowhere, just like it did for me. You end up with dry theology that leads us nowhere. But there's a flip side to this. There's a flip side to this. And it's what I call, it's what I call cheesy theology. Now, I didn't get that one from Ellen White because I don't think the word cheesy was around back then. But it's what I call cheesy theology. Right? What is cheesy theology? Because I went through this experience as well. Cheesy theology is when you say, forget doctrine. It's not important. The only thing that matters is the love of God. And now I went through this experience because I felt like, you know, this doctrinal stuff isn't working for me. So you know what? Forget all that. I'm just going to focus on, the, you know, God's love. I read an article not too long ago about a man. He was sitting in a cafe. He's a, he's a writer, right? So he's sitting in a cafe. And I like to write as well. And the thing about us writers is we're always observing the world around us for stuff to write about. So don't hang out with me because I'll write an article about you. Just, just kidding. Um, he was observing. He's sitting in this cafe. He's observing, and he sees this guy walks in, and he, he goes up to the cashier to make his order. But the thing is, this cafe, you got to understand the context. This cafe was in a town that had a Christian university. And so this guy walks up to the cashier, and he says to her, I can't stand this university. Talking about the Christian university around, across the street. It turns out that this guy was an atheist. And he didn't like the Christians. So anyways, the cashier happened to be a student at the university. 
So she says to him, oh, I'm a student of that university. What is it about the university that you don't like? So they start this conversation. So now the writer, he's like, he's zoomed in. He's like, you know, Snoop level 10. And he begins listening. And he's listening as this atheist. An atheist who was well-versed. An atheist who was well-schooled. An atheist who had read Dawkins and Harris and Nietzsche begins to ask these profound questions of this student about faith, about politics, about pain, about struggle, existential questions. And, and the writer, I'm reading this article, the writer made the painful observation that this girl had absolutely nothing to say. Except for one thing. All I know is that Jesus loves me. And when the conversation ended, this atheist was so disappointed that he walked out of that cafe thinking, you guys have nothing meaningful to say to this world. And now the point that the author was making is that he's like, look, I don't know what church this girl goes to, and, and I've never been to her university, but, 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 when your whole theological structure becomes simply about this and there's no depth to it and there's nothing to help you dig deeper, that might be something that's really easy and that's really, really, you know, marketable, but it has nothing to say to the real problems that people are facing in this world. Your theology has to go deeper than Jesus loves me, this I know. You, you, you should have something to say about the existential problems that face humanity. You ought to have something to say about the, the challenges that face current contemporary society. It should be about more than just a romantic escapade with God. And yes, that's there. But it should be about more. See, what I discovered in my life was that as I put doctrine to the side because it wasn't working for me and just focused on love, what I discovered was that um, it wasn't working either. It was just as powerless. And that's when God began bringing me to a different understanding. That's when God led me to realize that the Bible is a Aggressive unfail, unveiling, pardon, of his heart, and that that unveiling takes place in the harmonious dance between the overarching theme of God's love and the doctrinal magnifying glasses that give us greater, more colorful, more relevant glimpses into his love. And so, if I can get this, did I turn this thing off? It's not working, but I should be going to the next slide. Oh, there we go. <clears throat> Did you do that or was that me? Oh, that was me. Okay, it works. It lives. And so why am I bringing this up? This is a recap of what we've been exploring because last year we, you know, we talked about the heart of God, the heart of God, the heart of God. And, and, and there's a sense in which the heart of God is, is the central theme of Scripture. If you're studying doctrine and you're not looking through it to get greater glimpses of the heart of God, it's pointless. But if you're ignoring doctrine, it's also pointless. The two of them have to be together. There's a harmonious dance between them that opens up the Bible in a way that is absolutely amazing.
Now, some people ask, why does this matter? And I think there's three answers to that question. The first is that the battle between good and evil is fundamentally rooted in the character of God. And so Scripture plays the role of revealing His character. And it doesn't just happen in the book of John, guys. It happens everywhere. It happens in Genesis. It happens in Deuteronomy. It happens in Daniel. It happens in Revelation. That the character of God is progressively revealed throughout the entire narrative of Scripture. And the reason why God is revealing his character is because the whole battle between good and evil is about lies, about who he is and what he's like, and the truth about who he is and what he's like. So we need to read our Bibles to discover the heart of God in everything that we read. And we also need to read everything. The second reason why it matters is because, sorry, let me just keep going here. The second reason why it matters is because we become like what or whom we worship. And this is where it gets real. When I was growing up in church, I don't know how many of you here um, would probably relate to this. Um, I grew up in a you know, Latino church in the East Coast of America. Wonderful people. These are the kind of church, you know, you go to church at 8 in the morning and you're there till 8 at night. Good stuff. Good time. Um, and I observed something really interesting. See, I don't know if the whole Latin world is like this, but at least the church that I grew up in was like this. There was a lot of people who joined our church because they believed our church was right. They didn't join it because they had been converted in the heart. Now, you might think, oh, Marcus, that's really judgmental. But you pick it up as you observe. So one of the things that I observed was the sheer amount of young people in our churches who the moment they got one tiny bit of freedom, they were gone. They were ghosts. And the reason why is because many of their parents were extremely controlling and coercive in the way in which they raised them in a faith experience. And the reason why they were controlling and coercive to their kids is because they believed in their minds that God was controlling and coercive. And if God is controlling and coercive, then the way I treat you is going to be controlling and coercive. If God is judgmental, I'm going to be judgmental. If God is critical, I'm going to be critical. If God is cruel, then I can be cruel. Who we worship is who we become like. Now, for those who doubt this, it just takes a little bit of a overview of history to see how true it is. The Crusades did not happen because there was a bunch of bloodthirsty people who just wanted to go around killing people. The Crusades took place for a complicated number of reasons. Among those, the concept of a God 
who sanctioned this sort of behavior. The concept of a God who hated pagans. And if God hates pagans, then it is justified for me to pick up a sword and slaughter them. If you think as well of the, I forget what they're called, the Inquisition. One of the common ideas in the Inquisition, which is where heretics, supposedly, people who had left the church, were tortured. Now that torture took place in the minds of those who did it as an act of grace. We're torturing these people in order to bring them back into the fold, in order to save them from their heresy. They weren't sociopaths who were just running around and hated everyone and just wanted to be cruel. Their picture of God was at play in how they treated others. Or if we go to the southern states, the one filled with members in good and regular standing who read their Bibles every morning and sung hymns every evening while wielding the whip on the bare backs of the slaves they purchased at the local human trafficking market. We can look at this and we can think, how cruel. You know, how could I saw that movie, um, 12 Years a Slave. Anybody here seen that? I regretted seeing that. I was depressed for like a whole week after seeing that movie. I couldn't fathom. I just couldn't. It, it just didn't. I was like, how could a human being do that to him? It just didn't make any sense to me. Until I, rem, I was reminded that if you have created a theological narrative in which God thinks this is okay, then you'll think it's okay. We talk about the persecutions, people being burned at the stake. All these folk were back at church the next day. It's like Paul when he was Saul. Stoning Christians, arresting them, dragging them off to prison. He wasn't a sociopath. He really, truly believed he was doing God's work. Your picture of God will ultimately determine how you treat others. So this is the second reason why it matters. The third reason is a little bit more shocking. I usually share this and people will say things like, you know, Pastor, I'd never participate in something like that. And who knows, maybe you're right. You know, some of us are a little squeamish, you know. We wouldn't do these things no matter what the context was. But regardless of whether we would, we have to keep something in mind. And this is what we're going to be, now, now, you know, we've done a bit of a preview. Now we're doing a bit of a sneak peek. We've got to keep something in mind. And it's that Jesus predicts a time in the end in which neighbors and families will betray one another. Years ago, when I was at university, there was a student in my class. Karen was her name who had a very good friend who was a doctor who served in Rwanda during the genocide. And she talked to him when he came back to the States because she wanted to know what was that experience like. And she talks to this doctor and the doctor said to her, you know, what's interesting is when I come back and people figure out, they learned that I was in Rwanda during the genocide, they often ask this question of how could people do that to one another? And he said, this is my answer. Everywhere in this world, humanity is essentially the same. The difference is that right now in the West, 
we have a cushion that keeps us safe. We call it the economy. It keeps us sane. It keeps us comfortable. But if you remove that cushion and the supermarkets go dry and the water runs out and the food runs out and the police stop working and the military goes into strike and it's every man for himself, you will see the same exact behavior no matter how civilized your society is. You see, the book of Daniel reveals a time in which the economic cushion that keeps society sane will collapse. And the survival instinct, violent and cruel as it is, will take over. And during that time, the thing that will determine how you treat others will once again be your picture of God's character. See, I don't just talk about God's character because I think it's cute. I don't just talk about God's character because I like to talk about love. I talk about God's character because it has a very real implication, not only for our present life and how we treat one another in the church and how we treat people we disagree with and how we treat our family members, etc., but it has a very real implication for how we will treat one another when the world that keeps us comfortable collapses. So how are we to prepare for this? I think the answer is simple. Jesus said it. Let me, uh, let me get through this because I already said all this. If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. See, I believe that the way in which we prepare for this, one of the ways, it's not the only way, but one of the ways. I'm just highlighting one thing because I like to keep things simple. I have a difficult time concentrating, and I just assume everybody else does too. So one point today. The way in which we prepare for this is by one of the ways, by coming to the Word of God and discovering the truth about His character. Because as, as we allow the Bible to unveil the heart of God, as we look through the various doctrines into the heart of God, what happens is we are beholding His character and the more you bask in the glory of who he is, without you even realizing, you begin to become like he is. The narrative of scripture is quite simple. There was a war in heaven. The devil comes down to the earth. He's displaced with his angels. God raises this nation after the fall of humanity to be the revealer of his character to the world. Nation of Israel, Satan rises up against Israel. Why wouldn't he? By the time Jesus shows up, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and even Paul, who was Saul at the time, and the disciples, they treat others according to their picture of God. The Pharisees and Sadducees, you know, somebody sitting on the side of the road, they're paralyzed, they're blind, they're suffering, they need money. The religious people walk by, oh, oh, that's happening to you because you and your parents sinned. That was their picture of God at play, guys. They believed that this person was suffering because God was punishing them for some sin that either they or their parents committed. And that excused their indifference toward the suffering. If you think your picture of God has nothing to do with how you live out your life, you're mistaken. Again, I talked about Saul already. 
he persecuted Christians thinking he was doing God a favor. So by the time Jesus comes, he's rejected by his own people and killed. The church continues the mission of Israel, and now I'm taking a sneak peek once again because we're going to be digging into Daniel, and is then corrupted into a religio-political power that oppresses the masses with lies about God. We're going to dig into that a little bit more, the history of the church and how the church came to be the, 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 the ultimate promulgator of lies about God and injustice. Over a thousand years later, a reformation takes place. A new movement emerges to restore the truth of God. That's the Protestant movement. We're all, or at least some of us would be familiar with that. If you're a guest here, come back a few times and I'll explore that. Get a good gist. Shortly after, the Protestants themselves begin persecuting others. I'll give you an example. During the Protestant Reformation, there were different groups emerging. They were discovering truth about God that had been buried under years of tradition. One of those groups was known as the Anabaptists. The Anabaptists, through reading the Bible, discovered, you know what? We, we shouldn't baptize with sprinkling. It's full immersion. Because the full immersion is, 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 there's a story behind this full immersion of being buried with Jesus and raised to life with him. And so we need to return to the, to the model that Jesus gave us for baptism, this full immersion. The rest of the Protestants, you know what they did? They said, amen, hallelujah, let's do it now. They tortured them, and they killed them, and the, the, the most desired way to kill an Anabaptist was by drowning them. Oh, you want full immersion? We'll give you full immersion. What does that come from? It comes from the picture of God, he, the God of heaven sanctioning this kind of activity. And that's only one story. There's so many, but I don't want to get into all that. It's kind of, kind of depressing. Now, some of us may be sitting here thinking, you know what? Hey, you know, I'm an Adventist. This doesn't really apply to me. But it does. Everywhere I go, I meet wonderful Seventh-day Adventists who are chained in lies about God. Stuck in mire of legalism. Unsure about their own salvation. I went to Georgia a few years ago and worked with a, you know, with a church, and there was a man in that church, absolutely amazing man. He was in his 80s. He was close to dying. He didn't have much left. And one day I was talking to him, and he says to me, he, this guy had been in the church for a long time, his whole life, I believe. And he said to me, oh, I'm not sure if I'm going to make it. Where does that come from? If not a lie about God that he was believing somewhere at some point. The despondency in his eyes at church every weekend, trying his best and still feeling like there was this God in heaven rejecting him. I find that all the time. Adventists wrapped up in lies about God. The difficult God they worship reflected in their own difficult characters. Our churches are dying, our monotonous worship, a reflection of our mechanical God. Our youth leaving, our leaders aging, our church is hardly known by anyone outside our walls. I'm not talking about Big Park here in general. I'm talking about the, in general, the world across. I've seen broken people driven out of our churches. And gossip and slander are primary weapons of choice as we dig our trenches in the never-ending war between liberals and conservatives. 
in our history, we've promulgated lies about God just as much as the very religious institutions we were raised to protest. Satan's war against truth is alive and active among us. And the point that I'm making is that our safety is not in a label Adventist. Our safety is in Jesus. Our safety is in opening the Bible and recognizing that in this book, there is a progressive and powerful revelation of the character of God in everything that we read. And we're going to look at that. We're going to look at end time events. We're going to look at Mark of the Beast. We're going to look at all that stuff. But we're not going to look at it just to look at it. We're going to look at it so that we can look through it and realize the beauty of God's character that we hadn't realized before. So three reasons why true understanding of God's character is so important. First, I think I have them on here. Do I? Do I? Uh, yeah, there we go. First, because it is the foundation of the war between good and evil. Second, because we become like the God we worship. And third, because the Bible predicts a crisis in, at the end of time in which your picture of God will be one of the primary determiners in how you treat others. But there's a fourth reason. In the book Christ Object Lessons, <clears throat> we're said, this is, this, is, this is what Ellen White says. I love this. The last rays of merciful light. The last message of mercy to be given to the world is a revelation of his character of love. When it's all said and done, when you're breathing your last breath, when you've got one thing left to say to a wandering and moribund generation, it's God's character of love that you're called to proclaim. Not only is it the war between good and evil that makes this important, not only is it because we become like we worship that makes it important, not only is it because of the vision, the apocalyptic vision of end times that makes it important, it's important because of all, in the midst of all this drama, God is up to something. God is going to pour out, he's going to shower, he's going to inundate this world with one final revelation of his character. And guess what? He has called you and me to be a part of that. So throughout this year, like I said, this is a, a recap and an intro. Throughout this year, we're going to keep digging into the heart of God. In every prophecy and poem, in every letter and biography, in every record and parable, God's heart is the central theme. And my hope and my wish is that as we behold it, we become like him. And that as we become like him, the world will see his character reflected in us. I love how Alan Redpath, old British preacher from way back in the day, he puts it this way. I want to close with this. He will transform you into his likeness. You do the beholding. He does the transforming. As I prayed this morning, I want to invite you in, in, in your seat where you are as we pray together. If you have a desire in your heart to say, God, I want to behold you this year. I want to be brought into your presence this year. And my own personal devotional time as I'm reading my Bible. And, and, and when I come to church at, at every stage, I just, I want to behold you this year. And I want you this year to just, to make me more like you are. As I pray today, as we bow our heads and I pray, I want you to say that to God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven. Lord, we had a, a crazy year last year exploring 
your character as is revealed through these different stories in the Bible. We looked at Abraham, we looked at Jesus, and we looked at people that Jesus healed, and all kind. We jumped all over the place and just <laughs> just took this journey. And in every step and at, and at every turn, we we could see your character just shining out, its glory, its beauty, its power. And this year, we're going to do it some more. We're going to look through Daniel, through Revelation. We're going to explore the way in which your character leaps out at us through the various themes and teachings that are explored in these books. And my prayer is simple. Like that blind man that Jesus healed, he said, what do you want? He said, I just want to see Lord, we are like those blind people just crying out. We just want to see Jesus. Open our eyes, Lord. May the Bible become to us a never-ending treasure of your heart. May we be transformed into that image. Lord, for the next few moments, I'm just going to pause in silence and allow each of us to have a personal moment in which we can say to you, Lord, may, we, may I behold you this year. And then I'll close off with a prayer. Lord, thank you for hearing us. Thank you for speaking to us. As we leave this place this morning, may we leave to reflect your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's latest episode of the Story Church Project Podcast. I hope you were blessed. If you haven't yet had a chance, I want to invite you to head over to thestorychurchproject.com and subscribe to the newsletter. Not only will you get the latest updates every week, but I'm also going to send you a free gift straight to your inbox. You don't want to miss it. I'll catch you on the next one.